This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Civilization, the role-playing game. Alexandrine of Toxis. Late Aughts Horror Essentials. And the Highgate Vampire. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. But, Robin, the dice are... They're astralagoy, they're hucklebones from an antelope, and the... The Doritos are, are simple husked corn. Robin, the miniatures are, well, actually, they're basically the same. Um, but this, this is a gaming hut that is flung back to primitive times because beloved Patreon backer Ed, speaker in digressions, has asked us, has anyone ever done transition from a state of nature to civil society game of some sort? How would that work? Besides, civilization, both its board and computer forms, how would that work? I mean, that works if you want to do the whole campaign arc, I guess. What do you got? So, yes, I can. The thing is, I can see how this works. However, I can't see the emotional hook that would get large numbers of people to commit to play it for the amount of time that it would take to realize the concept. So, this is uh, clearly has to be a saga game, but it's not even set in multi-generational, it's like multi-epic, right? This is a period of time that spans thousands of years. 
And so uh, you're tracing your characters over the time as a society evolves. I mean, if it if it doesn't span thousands of years, you're just playing a Western. Right. Right. I mean, you're like, well, we're going to come build a civil society here. Hope no one was using this prairie. Right. There's other people <laughs> who have a uh, living in a natural state and we're going to shoot them mm-hmm. and then create a civilized society. So that's, that's somewhat different. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're actually doing the, you know, evolution of society from foraging and hunting to having an urbanized uh, sense of society with civil rules. That's a whole bunch of different stages in history. And I guess you would, so the first step would be to do the breakdown, right, of uh, the different stages along that path, uh, sort of cross-culturally. And so that you're, you know, you're not just following one civilization over that stop, but you've got some sort of way of abstracting out what all the different stages are. So presumably the first one shot is the foragers and hunters uh, notice some grain growing over there and then they do something about it. And and, uh, you are there when agriculture starts. A riveting, riveting topic for role-playing games. Right. Uh, (laughs) Well, because of course these are not personal stories. These are group stories that take place over and a huge length of time. And that, so I guess part of what we're looking at here is that early on, at least it has to be somewhat mythologized. I guess the early ones, maybe you are, you know, you're the realm of the gods, right? That because the other thing about getting people to actually do this is you're going to, I think have to nerd trope it in some way. Yeah. So if you start off from the, uh, you know, the gods contact the first culture hero, and tell him that those, you know, those weird looking stocky things over there, if he starts working on them, uh, they'll turn into corn eventually. And you can use, I guess, the, the time scale of the God time, the timeless time, sort of accelerate that at the beginning. So you've got some sort of nerd trope discovery of agriculture is your first scenario. The next one is we've discovered agriculture. It turns out to be terrible, <laughs> but we're going to keep at it. And, and and hope for an ecological crisis that makes it tenable. <laughs> yes. And I guess one thing that would have to be present to make it work and be interesting is the idea that you are making choices that every scenario will somehow continue to resound through later scenarios. Like it's a legacy just, game. Yeah. So it's, you know, which of these two crops do you select? And the one that you decide to select, which even then is weird, right? Yeah. Because in reality, you go with the grain you've got. Right. right. But no one ever picks Emmer. Yes. Or, <laughs> you know, your decision is, do you become the agriculturalists or do you, you become the raiders who live up on the hills and, and raid the agriculturalists? And, you know, that might determine, you know, are you a, a peaceful society uh, that has to defend itself from a less peaceful society? Or are you the sort of rogue forces uh, that come down and sweep in and take over? And then, oh, no, now we're running a city. Yeah. There's a civil society, and now we've got to be in charge of it. Right. So, yeah, if you, if, you, if you keep going the raider path, you, you can't level up after about 1600. That's just a hack for players of the game. I, I suppose what you could do with this... I mean, the only game that I can think of that is a fun to play and be capable of covering something like this, but C, you would have to play with a bunch of history majors or anthropologists or people who have at least done the reading 
is something like microscope where you, the game is to build the history and individually in microscope, there is the opportunity to, to have role playing moments at, at crux times in the timeline. And if you define going into microscope that you're starting from a state of nature, we've been sort of theorizing that this is the state of nature circa 15,000 BC. And then you're ending in civil society and you can say, we declare victory once we've built a city in Sumer. And so it's to, let's say, you know, 5,000 BC. So you got about a 10,000 year stretch. Then you can build it out and, and tell uh, the story of individual tribes or individual clans or even, you know, individual immortal culture heroes that live through and are every so often they have to be going up into the hills or uh, uh, to the magic forest to meet the god and come down and uh, and say, oh, it turns out we can dig a canal or whatever. And that's, again, I don't, you know, making it riveting, making it something that you care about. Some of that has got to come bottom up. It's got to bubble up from the players. They've got to be invested. And the notion of, you know, we're going down into this dungeon to get the secret of, of fired clay is a little weird. And I think it the, the artificiality of deciding you're into it might by itself put people off it who might otherwise be into it in another sort of a setting. I suppose you could also do a somewhat compressed version of the game in which you're setting it uh, like we talked about last episode. We talked about setting games in Sumeria. You're playing on the fringes of one of the first Sumerian cities. And as the city is being built, so parts of the setting are not in the true state of nature, they're farm communities. And you have the option of playing farmers, like you say, or hunter-gatherer fishermen from the Euphrates and Tigris deltas that were, uh, I mean, let's leave the Elamite raiders out of this for now. Just the people who, who are the Bayou folk who don't need any of your fancy city citification. And they have their own little private gods. And the gods of the cities are getting more powerful. And the question is, at what point do you cash in and get access to this god magic versus keep a hold of your of your um and we're being grossly stereotypical here keep a, keep a hold of your nature magic your spirit magic and you could do something like that i think as a generational game uh, not a multi-generational game and that could be you know you could do that with with runequest or or, or quest world or any of the sort of glorantha e things where it is potential that depending on what the player characters decide, and you should definitely have them be intermarried across the culture border, whatever they decide, the gods are active and ructioning around and their actions can alter the balance of godly power between gods and spirits or between the, the god of Lagash and the god of Kish, if it comes down to that, right? You're, you're at least compressing the thing down into a, a time scale that I think people could maybe get their get their hooks into. Yeah. And I think the other secret is to do the idea of sort of characters who echo through time so that the conceit is that you may be the direct descendant of the characters you played in the last scenario, or you may simply be played by the same actor and have some of the same impulses. And so uh, the question is how to make sort of a dramatic conflict around the characters revolve around this procedural element of how do we invent this stage on the road to civil society so you know you were you were there and perhaps it's not even that you are creating agriculture but just you are there as agriculture is moving along and the people are coming down from the hills what do you do about what that what story is it and then the next stage of civilization everybody's playing a similar character 
and they have another problem that is arising from that development. So it's not the idea in in this version that the culture hero is showing up and interacting with you and and you're actually effectuating those changes, but it's just about being affected by those changes over over time so that you have, you know, a dramatic hunting and foraging story, you have a dramatic early agriculture story, you have a uh, and then you go through all of the steps and that but that the decisions that you make somehow reverberate and color the uh, the the later things, so they determine, you know, what what sort of civil society that you uh, end up with at the end. I mean, maybe your first characters become a pantheon of gods and hero gods, hero kings, your Gilgamesh types, and then the later characters that you have become clerics of those gods or are in, inculcated into the rune cults of those gods, and so that gives you a little, you know, sense of, oh yeah, the reason that you have a plus one with a sword is, you know, you were there when my God, uh, that I played the character who decided to, you know, invent metal smithing or found that meteor up, up on the hills and we could make iron and beat up everybody else who just had copper or whatever it was. And that, that, you know, culturally redounds uh, as opposed to genealogically. And, and that way it could even, you could go all the way to a uh, more or less contemporary society with with scholarship that then goes back and determines, you know, that all of the, the God Kings, uh, you know, Oh, well, obviously all of the gods in this mythology were just early people who lived in this one village. And so you can go through a route of, uh, from the, uh, mundane into the ma magical and the mythologized. And you can see that mythology of those original characters change with each, episode and impact on the politics and the way things go until you finally get to the point where oh yes obviously these you know these the, there's no supernatural beings they're all made up so you can go from the formation of magic to the belief in magic which may or may not be efficacious in your world to uh, at the end the triumph of uh, rational analysis which uh, puts everything in a nice uh, neat box and you can end uh, with your characters who play by the same actors as your first characters in a museum looking at, uh, you know, the original icons and artifacts of their spiritual, if not literal, ancestors. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can keep going all the way past the, these were all uh, heroes, you hammeristic theory, who lived in the same village, to they're more abstract expressions of, co of you know, social interests. They don't, you know, people wanted to know where thunder came from, and so they invented Steve. You know, that's just how it was. Right. Yeah. Again, I I think it would take a a lot of almost continuous buy-in to make it work at the table. I think it could be a fun meta structure for a game that was also about something else. So rather than make the whole game, just how did we move from nature to cities or how do we move from, you know, hunters and gatherers to uh civil society? Let's not glorify cities too much here, but uh how did that happen becomes the backstory to a, a game that is about, immortals or is about building that magical consensus and populating uh, the myths of the world. And then once you've done that, you know, you can sort of hop forward a little bit and suddenly it's about, Oh, find that first meteor that you found in the very first adventure. And that's a magic item. And so you build up, you know, the notion that there is some external force that hates both the, the simple hunter gatherers and civil society and external inhuman demons or whatever. And that, fighting them is sort of the, the threat of what the campaign is. And so you don't sell it as let's explore the transition from a Hobbesian state of nature to a Lockean state of contract. What you do is you say, 
let's tell a story about demons who are trying to stop humanity for the last 15,000 years. And uh, we're going to play in various uh, historical periods, but each time your characters do something, they'll affect the mythology of, of the universe. And that I think can, could maybe get people to, to, to sign on. And then you sneak the history of anthropology 101 in on them as the backstory. Yeah. Sell it as a battle of demons across a vast scope of history in which your characters echo one another. And I think maybe that's uh that falls more into the URX who do Y mm-hmm. formula for a core activity. Uh, well, now that we've, uh, I think we finally may have gotten this into a state where it's something more uh, than just a series of point form notes that you put up on itch and call a game, <laughs> but then we're done with it. Yep. And we, we finished this segment. We'll never hear about it again because there's something else lurking on the other side of this exciting commercial. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21. That's CROWN21 to save... 15%. At pelgrainpress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. It's time once more to undergo a retina scan and a background check and to go through uh, three layers of vaulting to look, in this case, into some exciting records that we uh, pull out of the drawer going all the way back to the 1600s, because we are going to look at Alexandrine, the Countess of Taxis, or is it Taxis? It's, it's uh, well, since she was probably speaking French, it's Tassis, but okay. it, since it's a German title, it's Taxis. Okay. So pronounce it how you'd like is, I think, the lesson I took away from my research. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> she was the postmistress of the Holy Roman Empire uh, from 1628 to 1646, and the operator of the first known black chamber. Now, uh, listeners, if you are like me, you know about the Thurn and Taxus Postal Service only from reading Thomas Pynchon, uh, where it is, of course, famously an element in his surreal conspiratorial novel and his most re- readable novel, The Crying of Lot 49. Uh, but Ken, you're going to tell us the real story, which is not at all about a conspiracy of uh, postmasters that continues to the present day. No, it's a conspiracy of postmasters that pretty much died out in the 1900s, Robin. Um, anyway, the Thorn und Toxis, you might also know it from a board game that, as far as I can tell, has nothing to do with Thorn und Toxis, but has a lovely name. Well, board games are not supposed to have anything to do with their outward their, appearance. Their subject matter. That's, no. That, that's, that's cheating. Yeah. So the, uh, the Thorn und Toxis family began as the Tasso family. Tasso means badger, and that's why they had a badger on their shield. Uh, they were from Bergamo. They were what is politely known as minor nobility. And when you look into it, what that means is they were the guy who stole a castle first. <laughs> 
they were part of, uh, of, of Bergamo politics roiling around in there. They briefly were involved with the rulers of Milan. And then when Milan got taken over by the Viscontis, they got kicked out in the wars of the Guelphs and the Ghibellines that we've discussed previously. Uh, and so they had to fall back on something else. And what they fell back on was founding a company of couriers, uh, founded that in 1290. And they rode around beginning in, you know, Savoy and the Piedmont and then throughout Lombardy and then throughout Italy down to Rome. They got papal uh, sanction to operate, uh, eventually got a papal monopoly and became the the couriers who would carry, you know, uh, death threats from Guelph to Ghibelline and collect a nickel on each one. And that turns out to be a good business. <laughs> yeah, if, if you pick the right group of people who are constantly death threatening one another, uh, it's, it's, it's good to get a... Your beak wet on each uh, individual threat. Exactly. It's like, well, um, this is a death threat. Any response? It'll only be a ducat. <laughs> oh, well, you just wait. I'll write. Um, and so anyway. He also said you're fat. Yeah. And um, he's, uh, I can't even repeat what he said about your wife, except for a ducat. So they, uh, that's where the post horn symbol gets added to their shield is after they found the company of couriers. That becomes a big deal. They joined the Habsburg service in 1443, which is a lucky break for them. And the Habsburgs just keep them on. They expand the post into Germany once they've uh, joined the Habsburgs. Frederick the Peaceful has the, the name to differentiate him from every other ruler named Frederick in history. <laughs> Frederick the Murderer. Frederick the Not as Peaceful. He, he adopts them. They get an imperial monopoly in 1489, and suddenly they are the only people allowed to carry imperial mail in the Holy Roman Empire, and by extension, anybody's mail. Uh, in Spain, uh, Habsburg becomes king and makes them gives them the Spanish postal monopoly in 1502. They move their headquarters to Brussels in 1516, which is Spanish and Habsburg territory, Spanish Habsburg territory. And then from that point, they build a postal service that... Spans Europe is a big word, but it goes from the edges of the Austrian domains to Portugal. So, so this was a, a private-public partnership. Exactly. Very much so. Uh, like all, basically all gigs were back then. And they uh, made so much money at carrying the imperial mail that they became counts in 1624. It is at this point that Leonard II becomes the Count of Taxis. Uh, he is married in 1616, a lovely and very rich German woman of uh, noble birth named Alexandrine Durai, or Durai Passet, uh, depending on where you gather your genealogical details. But anyway, when she marries Leonard, she becomes Alexandrine de Taxis, and then... He dies in Prague in 1628 during a little ruction that I like to call the Thirty Years' War. And she is appointed uh, the postmistress by his will uh, in 1628. I think Emperor Rudolf had said that wives of people who held imperial monopolies could inherit them. Perhaps he foresaw that there would be a sudden, you know, evacuation of imperial nobles. Yes, and the will says you can do this as long as you don't remarry. So it's, he's being possessive from beyond the grave. Right, and then she and they have a, a little kid, a lamoral Claudius, uh, who uh, is, you know he's nine when uh, his dad dies. So she takes over and basically holds his countship in regency. And there is some. Well, I never from more conservative elements of the Holy Roman Empire, but they didn't want to go to Belgium and run a postal service and they couldn't have gotten any of the other de Tassis or Taxis or whoever they are to help them out. So 
you know, you're stuck with it. It's easier to criticize someone else's running a postal service than to run your own postal service. It turns out that is true about virtually everything, and it is certainly true about early modern postal services. And once she takes over, she says, gosh, everyone's mail keeps coming through my hands. It's just lying around. I wonder if there's some way to turn a buck on this. And she gathers to her court. Uh, and again, Belgium in the 1700, 17th century is a great place to do this. A group of linguists, scholars, decoders, chemists, God knows whom else, and sets up a black chamber, which is signals intelligence back when signals was all written down. Um, what basically they did was you would get the diplomatic pouch from, let's say, England. Uh, and so uh, Alexandrine would, you know, have the guy sign for it. They would take it into the the offices, and there the chamber would open the pouch, uh, slicing through the seal. The guy who's in charge of replicating the English royal diplomatic seal would probably already have one by this time, but he'd maybe make another one that would be exactly like the one that they just sliced. They take out all the letters, they slit them open, copy all those seals, copy out all the contents, put them all back. Alexandrine would occasionally say, oh, let's delay that package a little bit. That seems a little spicy. And um, then she would take chunks of that information and write it up in a newsletter that she would then sell to interested consumers. And then the rest of the information she would hold back for her spy master, who was probably whoever was the spy master for the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II, or also possibly for the Infanta of the Netherlands, uh, who was the woman who basically ran uh, Belgium and was uh, a fairly uh, powerful and impressive figure in her own right, and had been uh, not a small reason that the will of uh, Leopold of Texas, or Leonard of Texas, rather, was uh, processed with such little friction. So she's serving many masters, as a lot of early modern spy masters did, but she has the whole system down where they can break down the entire diplomatic pouch from England, like all the mail from England, because it's all supposed to travel under royal seal, in about half a day. Because we have letters from a uh, guy who was the agent of Charles I in Belgium named Balthazar Gerbier, and his letters, by the end of his tenure as Charles I's spy in Belgium, are all about how to stop Alexandrine of Texas from reading your mail. <laughs> <laughs> and he is just baffled and dumbfounded. And in, um, uh, I think it's 1638... 1637, uh, she signs a deal to become the postmistress of Calais, which is the port through which all ships go to England. And she's like, oh, no, don't worry. We'll, we'll run it with our third and taxes efficiency. And suddenly you can't even pass it through the governor of Calais because the governor of Calais will just turn it back over to the, you know, uh, third and taxes people. And, uh, he's just, he just gets madder than a wet hen throughout the whole process. His letters are in fact, how we know that Alexandrine was running the black chamber, because unlike a lot of spies, she didn't write a glorifying memoir about it. She just went ahead and did it. And in 1633, he catches on. He's been there since 1631. She's been doing this since 1628. Um, he catches on in 1633, uh, begins to notice that his mail is being interfered with and, and read and shows up in the newsletter that he subscribes to. And <laughs> he uh, writes to her. Uh, he, he calls on her house. Uh, she's not there conveniently uh, with his wife so that he can talk to her 
uh, socially comes back. He writes her a letter, says, I, I was at your house. You weren't there. Uh, my wife was there. She says, hi, don't know how to say this, but all of our mail is being interfered with. And he says, your, and this is a quote, your honesty, dignity, and sex automatically place you above all suspicion, of course, but it would be a real help if you'd find the person in your office who's opening all my mail. That would be great. Signed, Balthazar Gerby, or not at all spy, sends it off. <laughs> and then the postmaster of England has written to him because he's been going back to England and saying, when did you send this? It's like, nope, it should have gotten here. And uh, he says, don't worry. I took care of it. I talked to Alexandria and the Countess of Taxis. There's, uh, it's going to be, ta hold on. What if she's the spy? And you can see it in his letters that he's like, suddenly just blind panic strikes him. And he starts writing to everybody in his, uh, network saying, stop sending stuff through the Thurn and Texas mail until we figure it out. And then most of them would write back and say, what mail do you think we should use? And also she was running her own covert mail service. So not just the official mail service that she had the monopoly on, but an illegal mail service that if you were, oh, I don't know, a Protestant in the Netherlands who didn't like King Charles, uh, you could get mail to England for just a few ducats extra on one of her boats from Ostend. And uh, Gerbier discovers this entire channel of uh, shipping that exists, which is how uh, the winter queen, Elizabeth, former queen of Bohemia and claimant to the throne of England, would get letters to her friends in England is through the secret Thurnan Texas post. So she's both the NSA and toward encryption. Yeah, exactly. She's the whole nine yards. She's great. And she speaks like four languages. She raises her son to speak five languages because, you know, that's just a good mom. Uh, she trains him up and uh, she thinks I've had to put up with a lot of high hat from nobles. I don't like it. And so one of the things she plows her profits into is hiring a genealogist to discover a better ancestry for the Taxus family than a bunch of badger guys in Italy and discovers, look at that. When we were in Milan, they married into the Della Torre family, the Torianis, who are the princes of Milan. And so therefore we should get to be called the Tor and Taxus or in German, the Torn und Taxus. And uh, Lamoral Claudius starts signing things that way and is slapped a little bit by the Imperial Herald, who says, you can't just make things up. And he says, well, I have a book that my mom did. And uh, so one assumes in exchange for a couple of spicy letters from uh, Protestant grandees, Lamoral Claudius is granted the title of Count of Thurn and Toxus. And that is in 1650, after he ascends to become the Count of Toxus, his mother has retired officially, and uh, dies in 1666 after a long and apparently pretty happy and very definitely productive life. So this, like our contemporary NSA, is sort of the, the backbone of real intelligence, yet also uh, something that, since it's basically about document handling, is difficult to render into any sort of suspense or thriller mode. So how do we uh, use this as a backbone of any sort of uh, role-playing scenario, assuming we're not doing Crying of Lot 49, the role-playing game. Which I'm not saying we shouldn't. And by the way, Pynchon um, sort of gives her the hi-hat in the book. He's wrong, but that's just what a good spy she was. She even fooled Thomas Pynchon. Um, I think there's two ways. One, you are either working for the House of Taxes, the, the chamber, the black chamber, and among the things that get sent back and forth are various magic books and uh, spells and secret lore about 
the other conspiracy. So when something comes from the, the court of Carcosa, you're like, well, I guess we have to go stop that. And Alexandrine gives you some ducats to do it, but she can't do it officially because she's got her position at court to think of. So you become sort of her occult troubleshooters. And the degree of information that you have about the threat depends on that first decoding role that you make or that uh, that stealth role. And whether or not the, the bad guys are warned depends on how well you, you, you replace that seal on the letter or whatever else, and how long you were able to convince the the real postmaster to hold it back. You know, don't send that letter to Leipzig just yet. We have to go kill, you know, a, a shambling corpse monster. Just keep it under your hat. And he's like, I don't know. This is a lot of ducats. And and so you have, you know, sort of the two stages, the, the opening stage, or the sort of, you know, meeting in the hotel room from Mission Impossible stage where you have the information, and then the roles that you did on that affect your success in the actual mission. They, they they affect how much knowledge you have and how much lead time you have on stopping whatever the, the bad situation is. And then as you see more and more of this correspondence, maybe, you know, you become aware that, uh, you know, there's bigger fish to fry or that there's a big occult threat or you decide to become a big occult threat because look at all these magic books that are passing in front of your eyes and no one thinks that a mere, you know, middle-class uh, linguistic uh, genius could become a great magician, but you're here to prove him wrong. So there's, there's that is the possibility. The other possibility, of course, is that the third and taxes are just like in pension, the shadowy forces of the man uh, spreading their tendrils everywhere and that you are, are fighting against them. And there's a conspiracy and Alexandrine is the spider at the center of the web. And she has, you know, her hooks into every figure in Europe and it becomes a sort of conspiracy game. And then, at the top, you can say, and she's actually a vampire or, and she's actually, you know, whatever your, and actually your nerd trope is, but your goal is to go around, you know, literally around the 30 years war and uh, throughout Europe in that era, stopping the conspiracy and, and uncovering it. While anytime you send a letter, anytime you ask for advice, anytime you reach out, oh, the countess has read it. It doesn't matter how you sent it. She's going to get it because that's, that's how she does it. And so you have a sort of, you know, born identity sort of situation where you can't trust anyone because you can't tell them you, you literally can't because the, the message would go astray. The, uh, the, the Holy Roman Emperor in 1636 did allow people to carry private messages that were not thrown in taxes, but he said you couldn't hand the letter over to someone. You have to. <laughs> carry it the whole way. So the third and Texas, of course, have relays of couriers, just like the Pony Express, and they can get the message faster and, you know, uh, cheaper or certainly faster. And you, of course, have to walk umpty ump number of, of, of weeks uh, before you can get your message delivered, which is kind of a, a nice thumb in the eye uh, from Emperor Ferdinand. It was, it was a nice, a nice sharp bit of business. Well, of, of those two options, the one that strikes me as appealing is, is option A, where she is giving you uh, missions based on what she's finding in the mail, because this could be the Baroque era prequel to the Esoterrorists. That yeah. This is the Thernotoxis is the origin of the Ordo Veritatis, the worldwide organization that is uh, a sort of a, a meta uh, government on top of the regular one. And she's the first Mr. Verity, the one who finds all of the weird uh, demonic traces of the uh, outer dark. And uh, this is when you know, uh, rationalism is just ramping up. So they're particularly vulnerable and uh, uh, she can be the one or all of our various couriers, right? The real Mr. Verity is to show up, you know, in whatever city you're in because, you know, they take a break from handing off the mail to go and uh, give 
all of our agents the uh, assignments to uh, fight all of the uh, the outer dark entities. And the Thorn and Texas has like twenty thousand people working for them in the sixteen hundreds. So it's a it's a big, plausibly large bureaucratic organization. The chamber is probably just a couple of dozen Belgian geniuses in a back room somewhere. But the but the whole Thorn and Texas operation is is enormous uh, certainly for an early modern bureaucracy it's, it's really enormous well as we imagine all of those uh, bureaucrats uh, slaving away uh, by candlelight holding things up to the candles to see the invisible ink i think it's time for us to uh, carefully retreat from the tradecraft hut and see what awaits us on the other side of this delightful commercial message The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Don't let us get canceled like a cheap Thurnan Taxes stamp. Support this podcast alongside such mint condition Patreon backers as Ian Carlson, John Buckley, Keelan O'Hay, Michael Kewell, and Dreaming Johnny. The whir of the projector matches the chill down our spines as we once more walk to the center seats in the center aisle of the Cinema Hut, because once more we're here for the Cinema Hut Horror Film Festival, The Horror Essentials, and then we are on day 15, or week 15, or however this feels, 15, the 15th installment of that cinema journey, that cinematic experience. Robin, did we think that this was going to happen? Did we start out and say we're going to maybe hit... 18 or 20 episodes by the, by the end of this. I, I don't recall doing the math. On this, this, so. this is a, this is a journey, uh, but everyone is coming along with us nicely. We're very much appreciate everyone uh, joining in and, uh, and, and playing along. And here we are at the beginning of the century. Uh, J horror is, has, has had its first great blossoming and is now just another great uh, national horror uh, tradition that churns out uh, mediocrities, uh, which is how you can tell a horror tradition has really made it. But we are not dealing with such a mediocrity, and we're not dealing with Japan. We're dealing with, I think, the Pang brothers are Korean or Chinese. They're Thai. They're Thai. It's, this is this is from Thailand. Damien Oxide Pang, the Eye from two thousand and two. All right. So this is the the first Thai movie that is not only uh, breaks out in the horror world but gets an American remake. So this stars Angelica Lee as a, a young woman who has uh, eye surgery. She has a, a cornea transplant. And then afterwards, suddenly uh, she can see dead people. And 
it's the best movie in the East Asian ghost movie tradition. There's a whole lot of them. They're usually comedies that are uh, sort of uh, goofy and, and weird or, or not all that scary, even when they're trying to be scary to uh, Western audiences, because uh, our, our relationship with ghosts is a little bit different. But uh, the Pang brothers really bring that home with great effects and, and horror gags. And uh, what really makes this film is that it escalates beyond ghostness. Because as we've, as we've said again and again on the show, ghosts only take you so far, and this gets you to a big apocalyptic conclusion that is similar to uh, films like Pulse that we talked about last uh, week, where uh, the the ghostly and the supernatural uh, gets bigger and bigger and escalates to a, a big, exciting uh, finish. Yeah, um, it, it was filmed in Hong Kong, which is why I was thinking that the Pang brothers were Chinese. I, I think they shoot in Thailand, but they're of Chinese descent. Right. Okay. Anyhow, uh, the larger point I was going to make is it is a terrific movie. It it uh, does ghosts really well. Uh, injury to the eye has uh, ever since Frederick Wortham, we've known that's a, a no, no, you're not supposed to do it. And this movie, it, it, it finds that specific fear and sort of keeps turning it. It's almost Cronenbergian and that level, maybe that level alone, but it, it, it gets into that same country. I will say that the remake stars Jessica Alba, and that is probably the best thing you can say about the remake. But this is a, is, it's a, it's a good movie. And maybe because it's just a little too close to that Cronenberg squick for me, I did not fall in love with it when I saw it, but I recognize the degree to which it messes with you. And on the topic of, uh, squick, uh, we reach Haute Tension or High Tension by Alexandre Aja, a French director done in 2003. And this is the, the sort of the culmination of the slasher film as it becomes torture, what, what is later called torture porn. It's fundamentally about a, a final girl who falls into the worst imaginable set of circumstances. It, it has a little bit of that almost, you know, animated cartoon energy in terms of whenever you think something is as bad as it could get, it escalates both in tempo and in awfulness. And it is all about that tempo and all about that awfulness and very little about anything else. Uh, unlike say martyrs, another torture porn film that is also about religion and, and, and sociology and lots of other great stuff, but is not as effective as a movie. High tension is literally, it's about that. Um, the ending has been justly criticized, but the ending is so close to the actual stopping of the film that it doesn't really ruin anything. It makes you say, well, why did I watch that then? Which if you weren't asking that before, you're a, you're a moral nullity, right? The, the movie is, is, uh, is just explicitly cruel and it does an amazing and very effective and very scary job of it. I, I hate liking the movie actually, but I, I cannot deny that it really, really worked on every level for me when I was watching it. I didn't check it out, uh, see <laughs> a slasher film verging on torture porn. And that brings us to the films that I think define this era of horror are films that we are going to mention without actually recommending as horror essentials. And that is James Wan's Saw from 2004 and especially Eli Roth's Hostel from 2005. And the this cycle of torture porn is one of many examples of how the debate around uh, the use of torture in the global war on terror reverberates up into pop culture. And uh, naturally, of course, it would uh, reverberate into uh, horror because it is a, a moral horror and that this is 
the dark side of that uh, conflict and the moral compromises that it uh, brought, uh, particularly to the U.S., that is ebbing into horror and coloring it during this period. And and Hostel very definitely has a political mindset, is making political points. It's not a subconscious expression of that. Roth is very consciously expressing those questions in the movie, which is what elevates it above, I think, the the dreck of the genre, but I certainly would not defend it as a horror essential. So something that is completely outside of that direction, a beloved fun response to uh, 28 Days Later, the the sort of revival of the zombie comedy, which spawned countless zombie comedies afterwards, uh, Shaun of the Dead by Edgar Wright from 2004, uh, with a a delightful tongue-in-cheek a metaphor about who are the real zombies, the slackers on their couches playing video games, or The Walking Dead. Uh, it's suffused uh, with love for the genre and love for Romero, and uh, it has the great comic duo of uh, Simon Pegg and, and Nick Frost, and uh, is full of lovely little in-jokes and moments and, and energy, and is, a, I think, a great tribute to the Saturday matinee fun side of the horror genre. And, and also, uh, I think it uh, because it is such a gigantically successful comedy, for all the reasons that you say, and because Peg and Frost are such great classic comedy duo together, I think a lot of people overlook that the zombie part really does work and they really do sell it. And while it is not, you know, epistemologically terrifying, even in the sense that 28 Days Later is, it has enough of the real juice to make it an effective horror comedy in that the horror, uh, even more than Ghostbusters, the perfect horror comedy, even there, the horror is, is a little more abstract. Whereas in Shaun of the dead, the horror does come down to the personal level and it is very effective in between just side splitting jokes and jokes about splitting people's sides, I guess also on the general note of films that are not, about degrading and dehumanizing women, literally the opposite of that, uh, the movie The Descent by Neil Marshall from 2005, which is an all-female cast of spelunkers. They go down into a cave, and they encounter chuds. And it is, first of all, it's a perfect action thriller. Second of all, it's a perfect, scary, dark things horror movie. And third of all, it's a great character piece. All of the people are individual. You recognize them. You care about them. You root for one and sort of don't root for the other, although you root for her against chuds. It's really a perfect little put together uh, movie by Neil Marshall. And just an example of how with not a lot of budget, with no big name stars, really, you can make something that is literally as good as any horror movie uh, that that can be made for any budget with any stars. It's It demonstrates once more that concept and script are the keys to horror, and, and then I guess not screwing up the cinematography. Execution is everything, and in this yeah, case, the, right. the sense of the contained environment of the, of the darkness and the claustrophobia. It's the cave that generates even more threat than or sense of fear than the troglodytes. The troglodytes are scary, but it's being trapped in the cave with them that really makes all of the uh, difference. And in a way, this is less obviously also a metaphor for uh, the global war on terror and the war in Iraq, because it's about trusting a leader who tells you that they're going to go one place and do one thing, and they take you to the wrong place, and it turns out you can't trust the leader, they had the wrong information, and they were misleading you, and now there's chuds trying to uh, eat your face. Uh, there's also a level of social commentary running through uh, the host, a kaiju movie from Korea by Bong Joon-ho, which has a, a fun sort of human-scaled 
a monster that our uh, family is battling, and it's uh, you know a, a family of underdogs, a theme that runs through a lot of uh, Korean cinema, and is all about the sacrifices that a uh, family has to make to uh, stick together, and also just on the execution level of a you know the family without much resources. You know, this isn't the entire Japanese Defense Force fighting back against Godzilla. It's a nuclear family, and one of them has a bow and arrow fighting the monster from the from the sea. Although one of the great things about the movie is the degree to which official activity is paralyzed by its own bureaucratic incompetence and uh, malevolent, almost evil, but certainly negligence. That yeah. in theory, and, and that's like the theme of almost all Korean <laughs> genre cinema, including especially the the crime movies. Yeah, the um uh, the, the degree to which not just the Americans who are the, you know, sort of in, as in Godzilla, this movie's uh, obvious model, they're sort of the, the Fonzette Origo of the badness, but it's the, it's the national response that is completely screwed up and leaves it to these literally marginal figures to stop the, the monster. It's, and, and it works on every level. It was the first Bong Joon-ho movie that I ever saw. And at that moment, I, I, I knew that South Korea was going to be the big thing and that he was going to be, you know, the, the next great, great director. Uh, it's, it's such a great movie. It almost insults it to say that the monster is incidental to its greatness, but the, the, the host monster, unlike say Godzilla is not really iconic. It's just awful and bad and you don't want it running around Korea. It's, it's like the rare Kaiju movie where it's about the people and the people aren't just like, how do we fit humans in this? Story? Yeah. How, how do we, how do we justify taking Millie Bobby Brown and making her stare at Godzilla? Let's actually do a, a human story and there's a monster in it. And of course that works. Uh, speaking of uh, things that we're not going to recommend, but that blew up Oren Pell's paranormal activity, which takes found footage to the next level of just watching the nanny cam footage. And it is a movie that when I saw it, it was very much a, you thought Blair, Witch was bad. Come see this. And I saw it and I said, well, it's, it's fine, but it's no Blair, Witch." And I think that's my response to it even now, um, even after a million other ones. The issue with a lot with the, this film and, and the vast cycle of sequels and imitators that it spawned is that unlike the eye, it doesn't know how to escalate from the ghost and demon stuff. And quite often the creepiest, scariest stuff are just the little moments in one of these films, including this one where something moves a little bit on the dresser and that activates your sense of, oh, there's someone in your apartment, right? That the, the it echoes that real life experience, but this, because it has no third act, neither of us can recommend it, but uh, we're noting it because it marks a shift from the torture political horror back into the realm of the uh, supernatural. And I think the, the last two films we're going to talk about this time out are uh, very much in the realm of the supernatural. And uh, the first of those is let the right one in by Thomas Alfredson. Uh, from uh, 2008, and uh, this is another great example of world horror and a very touching vampire movie that uh, it's uh, another form of, uh, hey, you can make movies about kids if you make them horror movies because it's good that they don't have agency, and it's a, a delightful touching, possibly non-romantic love story about where Renfields come from. Yep. It is the best movie about Renfields ever. It is one of the best vampire movies ever. And I feel like Robin, your adjectives while all correct, don't underscore the blood freezing terror that happens both in the sort of immediate 
most vampire moments, but also in your recognition of your own emotions while you're watching it. This is very much one of those movies that uh, involves the viewer as a participant to build their own horror. You make your own gravy when you watch Let the Right One In. There are degrees and degrees, and I hesitate to spoil it because so much of the movie is about the revelation of what these characters are actually doing. But you will find yourself rooting for something. It happens. And then you say, oh, I did not want that to happen. (laughs) (laughs) It it does have one of the great all time. Don't mess with Clint. Yes, exactly. And uh, also it introduces cats to the vampire legend. It turns out in Sweden, at least cats hate vampires. So there you go. It's a, it's a Swedish film. I don't know if we mentioned that at the top. It is uh, cold and beautiful. Sheila loved it for the sweater porn alone. It's very attractive. It's, it's very glacial and cold on the surface, but the inside story is as warm as a beating human heart, literally. And I, w- I was blown away by it. It's still one of my favorite uh, vampire movies ever. It, it's terrific. Also in 2008, uh, we get another movie that I, I love. In this case, I love the high concept, although the actual film it works really well. It's called Pontypool, and it was directed by Bruce McDonald, and it is based, I believe, on a novel originally. Yes, indeed. Yep. Yep. Uh, which became a stage play, which I've also seen uh, and is also good, and was a mimetic zombie movie and therefore gets points just for doing something more interesting with zombies. It still has the sort of a visceral thrill of zombies, but also the zombies spread by words and by talking to you and that there is somehow some mimetic cargo that your voice carries, that your words carry that spreads zombie contagion. And uh, of course our hero is at a radio station when everything goes down. And so the question is, what can you say? What can you listen to? Huge, big questions philosophically, and then a just really rivetingly effective way to to spread that zombie contagion, because it's not so much a, well, just don't get bit. It's a, uh, all right, so what are you not supposed to do and yeah. how? Just try not to think of this zombie. Yeah, the, the great character actor Stephen McCaddy gets a lead role for once uh, and is uh, brilliant in it as the, uh, as the disc jockey. It makes great use of its formal limitations it's all set in a radio studio you're mostly just hearing about uh, the zombie apocalypse uh, from uh, this apparently uh, safe redoubt within it as it uh, spreads it's uh, sort of a almost sort of a take on uh, Maupassant's the horla as well as sort of a a, a meme that becomes a monster that uh, becomes a contagion that takes over and uh, not only from uh, from Canada but uh, Bruce McDonald lives in my neighborhood. Hey, there you go. <laughs> it's hometown from, hero made good. Yes, not even just Toronto, but he lives in my neighborhood. Pass him all the time. So I think, Ken, we're about headed into the home stretch. I don't know if we're going to get possibly two more installments of this. Next week, we'll, we'll be into the 2010s, into the teens. Yep. We can we can cross fingers that if, if Robin stays good and doesn't add more movies to the list, and I stay good and don't add more movies to the list, and then we don't just go on endlessly about a couple of these movies that we could literally go on endlessly for the whole segment on. I feel good. I feel strong, Robin. I think that uh, we're out of here in two or maybe three. Okay, well, let's get out of here and uh, find another segment. The 
Here is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing It's time once more to enter the vaguest of huts, the most ill-defined hut. We're not really sure what's going on here at all because we're at the cross-section of conspiracy and the paranormal and just downright oddness. We look out the window, there's an alien big cat screaming out in the moor. Oh, but wait, there in the corner, there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're drinking a kombucha and uh, they're uh, hanging out waiting to hear, Ken, here in the Elliptony hut about the Highgate Vampire, because such estimable Patreon backers as Bill Durfee and Gray St. Quentin both fell for our clever cue and want to know in a full segment, all of its own, the whole scoop on the Highgate Vampire. So this is a story that begins with the construction of the Highgate Cemetery in 1839, but really gets rolling uh, in the late 60s, in the fall of Delta Green era. It does indeed. Um, now, I should warn everyone, our, our more sensitive viewers, that a terrifying monster lurks in Highgate Cemetery, a monster who destroys everything, makes everything worse. That's Karl Marx. He does not reanimate at any point. He's still there. He's been taken care of. Also, Lucy Westenra, buried in Highgate Cemetery. Just a little note. But in uh, by 1967... It was no longer the kind of high-class cemetery where you bury Lucy Westenraw or even Karl Marx. It has gone to rack and ruin. It's a, it's overgrown. It's weedy and there's no money to keep it up. People haven't even been being buried there for a while. It's just uh, coming to pieces. So it is, of course, a place for teenagers to go. And in 1967, we have two teenage girls who report terrifiedly that they have seen corpses walk in the Highgate Cemetery, and they and they run away, and who knows what they saw. There's another report of a teen in Highgate Cemetery who felt the grasp of a cold corpse hand, and there are uh, sightings of a man in a tall hat who is mysterious, and also, perhaps connected to those sightings, there's area Satanists are getting up to hijinks because it's a unguarded cemetery, and what do you need for your Satanry? You need body parts and coffins and grave earth. And yeah. what better place to get it than Highgate Cemetery? And if, if there's a pre-Raphaelite poet buried there, all the better. All the better. There's the, All the Rossettis are buried there. And in fact, Elizabeth Siddle, the wife of Dante Gabriel Rossetti, died as a suicide. And what do we know about suicides, graves? It's where vampires come from. Uh, Dante Gabriel dug her up, not because she was a vampire, but because he'd left a book of poems on her and he wanted it back. 
That's Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and that's why you shouldn't date a poet. Anyway, in 1968, on Halloween night, in Tottenham Park Cemetery, a whole different cemetery, people found a body staked through with an iron cross and the flowers disarranged to point to that. So there was some sort of ritual slash prank slash proto-LARP going on then. In 1969, they filmed Taste the Blood of Dracula. Uh, exteriors in Highgate Cemetery. And on December 24th, 1969, finally, a voice of reason, Robin, area magician and tobacconist David Ferrant sees a gray figure in the cemetery and writes to the local newspaper and says, speaking as an area magician, less so as a tobacconist, I believe that a ghost haunts Highgate Cemetery. Maybe everyone should write in and talk about their ghost sightings. And of course, a flood of ghost sightings results, including a ghostly bicyclist and a woman in white. Yeah. As soon as you start looking for ghosts in London, yes. you're just going to see, you know, your, your net will drag in all, all sorts of them, even if they're not related to the ghost you saw. No. And it also drags in a fellow named Sean Manchester, who is a bishop exorcist of the old Catholic church. And you may say, wasn't the regular Catholic church old? It's like, yes, they are, but they don't go around making Sean Manchester a bishop exorcist. And so therefore they don't quite fit the bill. Right. And now he, he, he doesn't exercise bishops. No, he's a bishop slash. Yes. He is a, he is a multi-classed character. And indeed he shows up and says only a area tobacconist slash magician like David Ferrant would say, this is a ghost. It is obviously a vampire. And the way that I know it is that I have a woman who I will call Lucy. No, that's too on the nose. Lucia. And she has bites on her neck. And I've followed her as she sleepwalked to the columbarium of Highgate, which is the place where all the burial urns are. And then it goes into catacombs. Highgate itself is divided by a street called Swain's Way. And then there's tunnels underneath the street. It's really an ideal uh, vampire hangout. It's absolutely true. And so... David Ferrant responds, and there are pictures of him holding his stake uh, and saying, I'm going to hunt the vampire too, which, by the way, David Ferrant then spent the rest of his career saying, I never said that, but there's photographs. ITV uh, for Friday the 13th, March 13th, says, well, we got two crazy people and a vampire. This is news. They do a big story. They say, Ferrant and Manchester are going to go down to Highgate Cemetery tonight and hunt a vampire. Let's see who comes out with one. And of course, they ran it on the news. The UK has a totally responsible press, and that's the last anybody ever hears of it. That's the last anyone heard of it. And a totally responsible populace, because dozens of amateur Van Helsings did not immediately rush to Highgate, some from as far away as Chelmsford in Essex. That guy's name was Alan Blood, and he must have lived his whole life waiting for a vampire he could stake. <laughs> yeah. But maybe a hundred people mobbed Highgate Cemetery, busted through the police cordon. It was a, a show and a half, people screaming, finding vampires, Marco Polo. Neither Manchester nor Ferrant gets a vampire properly hunted. It's a, it's a big mess. Uh, they continue slanging each other off in the press. And on the 1st of August, someone finds an actual human body, a hundred-year-old body, woman buried a hundred years previously, who had been burned and beheaded. Again, the police think it's just Satanists messing around. Now, by fines, that means someone must have dug them up. Yes, they, they dumped them out of the coffin and were messing with their bodies. And the police said... It may be Satanists, or it may be an area magician slash tobacconist who wants to get back in the papers. And sure enough, they arrest him for breaking and entering at St. Michael's Clerkenwell graveyard. And he gets off on the technicality that you don't have to break anything to enter a graveyard. And the judge says, well, we our hands are tied. He then holds two seances to communicate with the Highgate Spectre. 
and says it's actually powered by ley lines. It's not a vampire at all. Don't be superstitious. Meanwhile, Sean Manchester has discovered, and I use the term advisedly, that one of the houses on the edge of Highgate used to be owned by a mysterious nobleman who fled the vampire persecutions in the Austrian Empire in the uh, 18th century. And that he brought a mysterious black coffin, which I've seen, but can't show anyone yet. And he tracks the vampire to the Ashurst house, which is apparently the house that the vampire cult or the vampire himself lives in. And then in 1973 or maybe 1974, his story changes, says that he tracked it to another house in Crouch End or possibly to Ashurst house. I was not a a thousand percent sure of the geography. And in fairness, I'm not sure it's all my fault. Now, there's a lot of making up going on here. Is the vampire persecutions in Austria a thing or part of the makeup? That is a legitimate thing. That is a real thing that you can find out by reading uh, Dom Calmet. You can find out about it by reading, you know, Montague Summers, which is, I'm sure, a kindred soul of Sean Manchester, a guy who also believed in an old Catholic church that existed only to make Montague Summers important. At the risk of an infinite recursion, then, it is something that you could also learn more about by as a Patreon backer, uh, asking to know more about it. Oh, sure. Yeah, Robin, obviously. I mean, that uh, goes without saying. The consulting occultist is always here for clients of any sort, especially those interested in vampires. So Manchester says he staked his vampire in 1973. Uh, Ferret said, oh, you did not. You're probably in league with it. And uh, Manchester said, that's fighting words. And so they scheduled a magical duel to be fought in Highgate Cemetery or on Parliament Hill uh, for the 13th of April. But they call it off. Right. Well, well if I have to fight a duel, I'm going to fight a magical duel. Yeah. Rather than like one of those swords duels or flintlock duels. Well, in 1974, Ferent is literally arrested again for grave robbing and uh, is, in fact, put in prison or in jail. Uh, he's convicted of grave robbing and other awful things. And between the arrest and the conviction sends a uh, voodoo charms to the cops who arrested him. So clever way to influence the trial. Not by the, he gets out of jail and then runs for parliament on the Wicca workers party ticket. I was not able to determine if there was a second person in the Wicca workers party. I just had a good time imagining the, the election headquarters there. That, that also implies the existence of a, a Wiccan conservatives party. Well, the Wiccan conservatives party and the Wicca worker party do agree that the true lineage of English kingship should be restored. That's on both their platforms. So there is a possibility for a coalition. In 1979, the animal mutilations that have been going on during the late 60s and early 70s in Highgate recur. So people are wondering if things are going on. Manchester in 1982 announces that the Highgate vampire spawned a vampire in Finchley. But don't worry, with the help of oh, Lucy's still too on the nose, Lucia, I have found that vampire and it was a spider the size of a cat and I've staked it and we're good there. He writes his book, The Highgate Vampire. This is a loose definition of vampire. If it can be a spider, I guess if it the, drinks blood, Robin. Right. And I guess it could be it was just in its spider form. Yeah, I think that's what it was. OK. Yeah. OK. I, I withdraw my objection. I refuse to believe. Well, I don't refuse to believe. I refuse to say about a living person who is famously litigious that Manchester killed a cat and pretended it was a spider vampire. What I'm saying is he killed a spider vampire in Finchley. In 1985, he writes a book called The Highgate Vampire. Ferent responds with a book called Beyond the Highgate Vampire. Ferent then publishes Bishop Bonkers comics about a crazy guy who thinks he's a bishop and is actually in league with demons. And Manchester responds by nigh pornographic oil paintings of Ferent. Great fun. 
keeping it alive. Ferret sadly dies in 2019. Manchester happily is still with us. But that, with the death of Ferret, seems to have ended the great Highgate vampire flap because now, I mean, it's no fun if the if the area tobacconist slash witch is not there to to fight with you. So the with so much to draw on, <laughs> uh, how do you? Uh, make this part of a uh, Delta Green scenario, which no doubt has to have the agents uh, in town for that scene uh, when all of the Van Helsings show up and cause a riot. Yeah, you absolutely have to make that either the opener or the big climax of the episode of the operation. It's in 1970. Delta Green is being disbanded. So this is the team that was in England. Maybe they were doing liaison work with Pisces. Maybe they were in England without telling Pisces. Either way, Pisces is obviously aware of this nonsense. And maybe it is your Delta Green team that gets it on TV so that the Pisces team has to deal with all these would-be Van Helsings and they can go deal with the actual vampire. Or maybe they're there. They see that these Van Helsings have uh, busted in and then they recognize the pictures because of course this was giant tabloid news pictures of the of the grave invaders are all over the newspapers and they recognize someone in the picture as oh no this guy's a legitimate necromancer we've been warned about this guy he's one of the children of Chorazin or whatever he's a he's bad news and so it's like what was he doing at highgate for this obvious publicity stunt and then they have to investigate what the genuine necromancer is doing in and around the Highgate vampire story. And maybe, you know, the fun thing would be to have Sean Manchester's version of it be sort of a weirdly distorted funhouse mirror of uh, what's actually going on. You could also, you know, bring in Dracula 80, 1972 and uh, even better satanic rites of Dracula as plot elements, and then say that hammer films somehow got a hold of your operation and fictionalized it in the form of two, hacked out last period movies. That's what you do when they dissolve the agency. You go and write films for Hammer. Yeah, you, you sell your, your memoirs to Hammer Films. And I think that you could have a lot of fun with sort of the meta nature of it. It, it almost becomes a, like an Unknown Armies scenario and certainly would make a lovely Unknown Armies scenario. Don't let me tell you, don't make it one. But where... Uh, Christopher Lee could show up and you could yes. bring in his uh, intelligence background. Right, uh, that he could be the mysterious figure that warns you off. You're getting too close. He's working for Pisces now, of course. You're getting too close, but save it for the screenplay. <laughs> right, yes. Well, write that down. That's very good. And so the uh, the notion of the the image of the vampire, it, it could be a tulpa vampire. I mean, I, we all love tulpas here. It, it could have been summoned by the Hammer crew making Taste the Blood of Dracula, that they accidentally, when they did the magic rite that summons Dracula back, Someone said, well, let's just use this magic right. It's from that book we found in Ashbury House. And yeah. we, we hired a Delta Green guy to, to make our script authentic. That can't right. go wrong. That can't go wrong. And so, yeah, and then maybe that's one of the other people you recognize in the tabloid pictures of the Night of a Hundred Helsings is a guy who writes uh, for Hammer. And you're like, that's interesting. And, you know, all of these threads can come in. And the question of the vampire's reality, who's making the vampire? Is it caused by belief? Is it caused by, you know, legitimate suicides, graves, and people that drink the blood of, you know, giant spider cats? Who can say? And that becomes the mystery. It's not the mystery of what do you do when you find a vampire? Everyone knows that. The mystery is, is there vampires? What is this? Is it a mythos thing? Is it a human sorcery thing? Is it a Pisces experiment that's gone horribly wrong? just like Delta Green stuff used to do back in the day. You know, what's going on? And that, I think, is the real... Because it's the fun thing about the Highgate vampire story itself is, you know, at what point does being a Satanist and helling around in a cemetery turn into 
oh no, you legitimately believe in the devil and you are legitimately believing in vampires and ley line spirits. To what extent is being a, an old Catholic exorcist bishop, just a sort of a fursona that you put on? And at what point is it? Nope. You're around the bend. You legitimately believe in vampires now. Right. And since this is a classic, perhaps the, the holotype of a media driven event that creates a belief in the supernatural and then social chaos, I, I would be remiss in not saying that this is also an esoteric scenario. Absolutely. Uh, and you could do it as a flashback. You know, everybody, you play your uh, moms and dads uh, when they were uh, in the uh, Ordo Veritatis in the 70s, or it can be a sequel where uh, somebody's bringing back the Highgate vampire because it's still, you know, very much on out there. It's in the internet. Podcasters even sometimes talk about it. And perhaps this could be, you could do your, your sequel to the Highgate vampire, just the way that so many uh, horror movies of the 70s have already had two or three sequels. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, well, obviously the, the Manchester and Ferrant did their own sequels endlessly. Uh, so you certainly, you know, can keep bringing them back as um, uh, sequels or reboots. I mean, that's that'd be the fun modern day esoterists is the esoteric cult is doing a, a gritty reboot. Just like everyone else is they're they're just as uh, poisoned by the failure of the veil as, as, as the rest of us are. Well, I think uh, now that we've generated uh, several scenarios and we've uh, finally told the full story of the Highgate vampire, uh, we can declare victory over this episode, but an entire new episode will come to fight with us uh, next week and we'll have to vanquish it as well. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast out of the cemetery by joining beloved backers. Anders Moline. Chris McCarthy. Evan Hughes. Jonathan Donald. And James Kiley. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. A rhinoceros, a cockatrice, and a turnip-headed wyvern walk into a forest in our latest design, Normal Times. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff! <laughs> <laughs>